Uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled uh, Joseph, Seeing the Good in God's Detours. And uh, a lady came up to me last week. She's new to the church, new to the Bible, new to Christianity. And she says, hey, pastor, I, I may be out of place here in asking this question, but you talk about seeing the good in God's detours, and you're using this Joseph story that I've never heard about before, and you're saying there's good in God's detours, and she says, I haven't seen one yet. Everything in Joseph's life goes from bad to worse to terrible. What good is there in the process? And I said, you've got to come next week. Next week, Joseph's life is going to change, and Joseph is going to begin to see the good in these detours that Joseph's had. And maybe this morning you're coming and you're new to Joseph, maybe new to church, and let me tell you where we've been. Starting in Genesis chapter 37, we started a journey looking at the real life of Joseph. Joseph was a man who was born into a very dysfunctional family, into a chaotic family, uh, and uh, as a result of his father's overwhelming and overt favoritism, you see Joseph's dad, Jacob, loved Joseph more than he loved any of his other brothers, and that was seen by the other brothers. It was symbolized as favoritism in a coat of many colors that Joseph was given. Joseph, as a young boy, would experience the moving of God in his life through the giving of two dreams to Joseph. Joseph would interpret those dreams that his brothers would one day bow down to him. So you take favoritism by their dad uh, to one son over the others. You take uh, one son having dreams, the youngest at that point, having dreams that the older brothers would bow down to him, and you create a recipe for disaster. Well, that disaster would take place as the anger of the brothers would boil over. On a journey uh, that his father would send him on, Joseph would go to check on his brothers who were taking care of the flocks uh, in a region uh, nearby. And when Joseph is still far off, his brother conspire that they're going to kill him. They're tired of the dreams. They're tired of the jacket. They're tired of the overt favoritism that their father shows this brother. And so they say, let's just be done with them. Let's kill them. And then cooler heads maybe prevail and, and some greed gets involved. They say, listen, there's some traders that are heading down this way. Let's sell our brother and make some money in the process. We rid ourselves of him. We don't have to kill him and deal with the guilt of that. We can tell our father that he was killed by some wild animal. And, and in, in essence, we'll be happy. He'll be gone. We won't feel the guilt of having to lay our hands on him. And we'll never have to deal with him again. And that's exactly what they do. They sell him to traders who then take Joseph down to Egypt. Joseph would go through a slave auction where a man named Potiphar would buy Joseph. He would take him into his house to be a slave. And Joseph would begin to see the favor of God even amidst slavery. Joseph would work hard. He'd be faithful, be a man of integrity. And God would prosper. Everything Joseph touched, every project that Joseph did, God blessed it and prospered him. And Potiphar takes this worthless slave at one point and elevates him to second in command. In fact, everything thing in the house of Potiphar was under the oversight of Joseph except for two things, what Potiphar ate and Potiphar's wife. Well, that creates a problem. You see, Joseph was a good-looking man. Joseph was a successful man, and that did not go by Potiphar's wife. She began to uh, lust after Joseph. She wanted to have uh, a relationship with Joseph. And over a course of uh, many events or many opportunities, finally she grabs Joseph and tells Joseph, I want to sleep with you. Joseph, being a faithful and godly man, flees that temptation. But in the process of him fleeing, she grabs a hold of his garment and, le and he runs, leaving it there. 
Now that's enough evidence in an Egyptian court to uh, say that Joseph was a rapist, that he had tried to assault the wife of his master, and that lands Joseph. Even though he had done nothing wrong, it lands him in prison. Joseph, not taking an opportunity uh, lightly, becomes the best prisoner in prison that he could be. Taking what would be a hopeless situation and shining the light of God and his blessing in all that he did, Joseph goes from, again, a run-of-the-mill prisoner to being second in command. The warden gives him oversight of all the prison, all of its activities, and all the prisoners. Which is unthinkable, really, if you think about it. A prisoner running the prison. But everything's going well. Until one day Joseph is walking amongst his prisoners and two prisoners are troubled. The two prisoners were well-known guys. One was the cupbearer of Pharaoh and one was the baker. Both of them that night had had dreams. Dreams that had frightened the daylights out of them. Dreams that caused them to be discouraged. And Joseph, being a godly and caring man, said to them, You guys look troubled. You look downcast. What's going on? Of which the baker and the cupbearer tell their story. The baker says, listen, I had a dream. It involved some baskets, some birds, some bread. And uh, they were eating and devouring all that was there. What's, what's going on? What's that? And Joseph says, listen, my God helps to interpret dreams. I've had dreams in my own. Let me tell you the interpretation. In three days, you're going to be pulled out of prison. And Pharaoh's going to bring you before him. And you're going to die. Your crimes are going to be the reason for it. You're going to be hanged. And in three days, exactly as Joseph said, comes true. The cupbearer says, hey, I had a dream as well. It involved cups, it involved wine, it involved grapes, it involved all manner of drink. What does this mean? Joseph says, listen, in three days you're going to be pulled out of prison as well. But unlike the baker, you are going to be restored to your place. You are going to be put back in your place as cupbearer. You're going to enjoy good, not evil. You're going to enjoy life, not death. And just as Joseph says, it takes place. Now the text tells us that when Joseph gives the interpretation to the cupbearer, he asks for one request. Listen, I've interpreted your dream. I've taken care of your discouragement. I've given you good news. Will you remember me when you come before uh, Pharaoh? Will you tell Pharaoh that I was a man stolen from my land uh, and, and I am a person now in prison for a crime I didn't commit? Would you tell Pharaoh that? Because Pharaoh's my only hope of getting out of here, my only earthly opportunity to get out of here. You're going to have the ear you're a pharaoh, please tell him what's going on in my life, and maybe he might, by his gracious and merciful spirit, allow me to get out of here. The cupbearer does the unthinkable. In uh, Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, instead of remembering what he had promised Joseph, it says the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And Joseph would stay in prison for two more years. Two long, arduous years. But then everything changes. At the beginning of chapter 41, the story begins to unfold. We're going to start seeing, as I shared with my friend last week, the story of Joseph is seeing the good in God's detours begins to come in full view. But before we look to our text this morning, let me pray. Father God, we do come before you and we thank you for... The joys of this world, Lord, the joys of sporting events, the joys of championships, but Lord, even deeper and greater than those temporal joys are. We're thankful for our salvation in you. We're thankful that we have eternal life, that that for the rest of eternity, we're going to celebrate you 
And Lord, as amazing it is to see five million people gather to, to, to celebrate a championship, Lord, we look with great admiration to uh, the billions of people who will stand before your throne and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Glory be to Jesus Christ, the one and only. And Lord, I'm thankful for stories upon stories from your scriptures that tell us about real-life people with real-life problems and real-life circumstances and how you moved in them to live faithfully. We ask for the same spirit that moved in the life of Joseph to move in our lives today. Use his story to move us and motivate us to live differently so that we might be a reflection of you as Joseph was doing in his own life. We love you and give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My message is entitled The Cinderella Man. Many of you know in 2005, Ron Howard produced a movie entitled Cinderella Man. It's the story that chronicles the life of James Braddock, a boxer from New York City in the early 30s during the Great Depression. The story goes a little bit like this, and I don't recommend usually movies to you, but I'd recommend this one. What a great movie. There's movies that I have as a, as a father of three boys of manly stories, if you will, that I want my boys to see and see what, what an ordinary guy can do and hopefully that will instill upon them. And this is one that uh, they have as a, uh, as a, a story that they need to know. But the story goes of James Braddock, 1930s, uh, part of the Great Depression in New York City. He's a boxer. But the problem is time, injury, age has gotten the best of him. And he fights what he thinks is his last fight, breaking his hand. And the problem is, is boxing was the way that he got money. It was the way he provided for his family. In the Great Depression, there was great difficulty, of course, in providing for your family. Thousands of men would, would go each and every day to the docks to find uh, an opportunity for maybe six or seven openings on any given day. And James, like many people in that day, found themselves having to sell all they had just to stay alive. Well, things get bad for the Braddock family, uh, so bad at one point because they can't pay for electricity, because they can't pay for gas during the winter, because they can't even buy food. In fact, James's oldest son is caught stealing just to provide for the family. James has to do the unthinkable with his wife. They give up their children to family members and friends. They can't even provide, take care of the family that God had given them. And James is at the end of his rope. Like so many people during that day, having to make horrific decisions because of circumstances around him. Well, James finds some work here and there, but nothing really to be able to provide for him. And he walks through the, the torture of trying to figure out how am I going to save my family from such turmoil. And he makes a decision. An opportunity comes for him to box again. Oh, it's small-time boxing, small crowd, small purse. But he makes a decision, I've got to do this. And an amazing thing happens. You see, when James fought for the fun and, and the glory of fighting, uh, he was washed out. But because of this new need, because his back was against the wall, James found something that he didn't have before. He found a heart that uh, was ringing in his body that was beginning to allow him to do more than he could have ever thought before. You see, the story of James Braddock would inspire another boxing story. You see, Sylvester Stallone in the late 70s would read a biography on James Braddock and would chronicle the life of another fighter, Rocky Balboa. 
A guy that would continually find himself against the wall and finding a way to rise above the circumstances. And that's what James Braddock did. During one interview after a fight, he says, well, what are you fighting for? And he says, for milk money for my family. You see, circumstances changed why James fought. And an opportunity came for James. After fighting a couple fights and winning some smaller fights, a promoter came and said, listen, Max Baer, the heavyweight champion, was scheduled to fight a particular contender, but because of injury, that contender has to get out. And you have the opportunity to fight against the champion of the world. Here's the problem. The last two men that Max Baer fought were killed in the ring. Max Baer had beat them so bad that they didn't live to speak of their fight. But you've got an opportunity, and, and the purse, even if you lose is enough to provide for your family for the next six or eight months. James says, I'll take it. I want my family back. And he begins to train, and he's the underdog of all underdogs. But with the heart that he had, he was ready to take on this fight. And that's what happens. In 1935, James Braddock, real life story, would fight Max Bear at Madison Square Garden, and the unthinkable would happen. James Braddock would win. And James Braddock would become the Cinderella man for all of America. And here's why. Because everybody in that day were fighting for their lives. Everybody had their back against the wall. And the story of James Braddock, this everyday guy from Brooklyn, was a story that all of America could grab a hold of. If James Braddock could win in the fight of his life, then surely I, as an American, in the midst of a depression, could win in mine. He became the fairy tale story of an ordinary guy doing extraordinary things. Now, why in the world? Would I bring Hollywood in to a sermon? Because I believe that the life of Joseph, that Joseph is the Cinderella man. Joseph is the guy who's got his back against the wall. Joseph is the guy who has all the world coming down upon him. Joseph is the guy that when things couldn't get any worse, they did. And instead of giving up, instead of just quitting... Joseph rises above the challenge. Joseph finds something within him. And here's the thing. It wasn't just a heart of of iron that he found. It was the Spirit of God who was with him and allowed him to prosper. That same Spirit within him, it was within us. And when we look at Joseph's life, no matter what we're facing, no matter what struggle we find ourselves in, no matter what fight we're a part of, we can look at the life of Joseph and say, if he did it, then surely I can do it if God is with me. And what we see this morning is that when we give ourselves to faithfulness and honorable living and trust that God will see these things through, that even the worst of circumstances, we can find victory in them. And I want you to notice this morning, that's exactly what chapter 41 does. If you're not in the Bible yet, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 41. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time this morning. Genesis 41. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Bible in front of you. You can find our passage on page 34. Page 34. And i got three points this morning. I want to walk through them quickly. We've got a lot of text before us, a lot of information. So your first two points are going to be more information. But stick with it because point number three will have application for us to draw from what we've learned. The first point this morning I want to look at in looking at the Cinderella man is the story that should take our breath away. As we get to chapter 41, it is an amazing turn of events. He's in prison. He's forgotten, Joseph is. He's been let down. He's been put in a place that he shouldn't have been. He should have never been in Egypt, but his brothers betrayed him, so he finds himself in Egypt. He should have never been in prison, but because of Potiphar's wife, 
He finds himself uh, serving time for a crime he didn't commit. And then he seeks the help of the cupbearer, and now two whole years have gone by, and the cupbearer has forgotten Joseph. If there was ever a dark time for Joseph, it must have been those days in the prison. And Joseph finds himself all alone. But in a matter of moments, everything is going to change for Joseph. He's going to go from the prison to the palace. He's going to go from being a prisoner in Egypt to prime minister of Egypt. And all of that should stop us and say, what an amazing set of circumstances. This story couldn't be any more set for Hollywood. It should take our breath away. Well, let's look at the story, and I'm going to do so by outlining, for the sake of kind of breaking this up, looking at these 57 verses, reading through them, and explaining what's going on. Notice we've got a problem in, verse, in, in chapter 41, verse 1. Notice the text. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came upon out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing out of one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Let's stop here. Pharaoh's got a problem. Pharaoh's had a dream. In fact, he's had two dreams in one night. Dreams he remembered. Dreams so uh, vivid that he remembers with fine detail of where the dreams take place, of what transpires. And he comes to his magicians and his wise men and says, listen, I'm the boss here, and I don't like to be troubled, because when I'm troubled, everybody's troubled, so let's not make me troubled. Help me with this dream. And one by one, the magicians and the wise men come, and they try to interpret the dream, and no, I don't got anything. Nope, I don't know what that means. Nope, I can't help you. And Joseph becomes more and more troubled because he has this dream. He believes this dream to be significant for the nation of Egypt. And there's no answer. And so what's Joseph, I'm sorry, what's uh, Pharaoh going to do? Notice there's a plan. We got to find someone who will interpret the dream, starting in verse 9. Let's keep reading. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Remember, the cupbearer stands right next to Pharaoh. That's his job, to test all the food and and to try everything before it touches the the lips of Pharaoh. And he says, hey, a light bulb comes on in in the cupbearer's mind. And he says, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream in its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him our dreams, he interpreted them and gave us an interpretation to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted these dreams to us, uh, he interpreted uh, what he interpreted came true. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Let's stop there. The cupbearer, all of a sudden, after two years, remembers, Aha! Joseph, I knew I forgot something. 
I knew when I got back into this role, there was something I needed to remember, and what was that thing? And Joseph, I'm sorry, the cupbearer starts hearing dreams, and I got these dreams, and, and, and the cupbearer says, well, I had a dream, and he's watching Pharaoh go through the same thing. Pharaoh's troubled. Well, I remember being troubled. Oh, yeah, I promised Joseph that I was going to tell Pharaoh about him. Here's a perfect time. Hey, I had this dream, and the baker had the dream. You killed the baker, just as Joseph said. I was restored, just as Joseph said. Maybe we should go get Joseph. Maybe we should go get him, this Hebrew guy that has this ability to uh, interpret dreams. Let's go get him. And that's exactly what they do. So let's pick up here, and we see the plan. We see the problem. Now we see the providence of God, starting in verse 15. It goes as this, and Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14, and so Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. The idea there, by the way, phrase quickly is with incredible haste. Get him now. So he quickly gets washed up, he shaves, stands presentable before Pharaoh. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, there's no one to interpret it. I've heard that it is said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me, but it's God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I saw on the banks of the Nile, and he goes through the dream again. He says, seven cows get eaten up by three ugly skinny cows. Uh, Seven uh, plump ears of corn get eaten up by withered and, and beat up corn. What in the world does this mean? I've never seen anything like this. What is to be made of it? And God gives the interpretation. Joseph begins to tell Pharaoh what needs to be done. He says, listen, this is going to happen. And this is coming quickly. Egypt is about to experience the seven worst years of famine it's ever known. And if you don't do something about it, we're going to have real problems in Egypt. If we don't prepare for this famine, then Egypt will no longer be around. And so there's a proposal made in verses 33 through 38. Let's go down to that part of the passage, okay? He reveals the the dream. He says these seven years are plenty, are the seven big cows and the seven plentiful ears. But seven years after that are going to be a famine. Those are the withered and ugly cows and the withered and ugly uh, cobs of corn that will consume the land. Verse 38, the proposal pleased Pharaoh. Well, what was the proposal? The proposal was find a guy who is going to lead this process of saving 20% of all of the corn and all of the grain that is produced in the seven hefty years, put it into bins so that you'll have food when the famine comes. Well, that leads to a promotion. Notice in verses 39 through 45. This proposal, verse 37, proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? Hmm, I wonder who he might find. Is there anyone that the Spirit of God lives within? Let's look around. Hmm. And someone must have said, hey, Pharaoh, why don't we get the guy that interpreted the dreams? The guy's right before you. If he's smart enough to not only know the dream and interpret the dream and tell you what you need to do, might he be smart enough to fulfill what needs to be done? 
Well, it pleased Pharaoh in that way. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 39, since God has shown you all of this, that there is none so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house and my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Talk about a promotion. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph. That signet ring literally is the authority. It's the royal credit card, okay? You get a business account. Then he puts garments on him that identify him as ruler. He's put on a gold chain around his neck, verse 42, and he's made to ride in the second chariot. So when they go on the parade, when Pharaoh's being praised and adored, Joseph's there right there with them. And you shall be set over all the land of Egypt. And when we go out in the public, everyone will bow the knee to the name of Joseph. Goes from prisoner to one of the most prized individuals in all of Egypt. And he says, listen, I'm going to set you over all the land. And so there's the promotion. Notice the program starting in verse 46. The program is... Joseph's going to start this food process, and he starts storing food away. And in the process of living out this proposal, Joseph is given a bride, and that bride gives him two sons. And so all is going well. The food carrying is going well. The program of collecting the food is so great that it's so plentiful that he can't even measure, the text tells us, later on, all of the food that it has, that it literally outnumbers the sands of the sea. So the program's working well. Joseph is given two sons in verses 50 through 52. And it says the following. Uh, Before the year of the famine came, so this is six years into the program, two sons were born to Joseph uh, and his wife. Joseph called in verse 51 the firstborn Manasseh. And how does Joseph do? He professes his trust in God. That's the profession. The profession is, listen, God has made me to forget all my hardships in my father's house. So Joseph tells the world, listen, I've been a broken-hearted guy, even though I'm second in command over all of Egypt. I have been downtrodden, I've been beaten, I've been mistreated, and my God, the same God who gave me the ability to interpret dreams, has given me the ability to give up all my bitterness and all my sorrow of the mistreatment that came my way. And then later on, he has another kid, and the other kid is, uh, first is Manasseh, the second one is Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, that even though I've been afflicted, God is faithful. And so he professes his allegiance to God, not once, not twice, but now three times. It's not me, it's God, and the God whom I serve. That's the profession. And then we have one uh, final one, and that is the provision, verses 53 through 57. Seven years of plenty uh, occurred in the land of Egypt. They came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said they would. There would be famines in the land, but all of the land of Egypt had bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was more severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Wow, what a story, right? Prisoner, prime minister. 
One who is waiting on God, and God just seemingly in a matter of just a couple moments changes everything. Here is a great reminder and a great lesson as we look at these 57 verses. You never know amidst trial when the storm clouds will run away, right? And some of you right now have, have destined yourself that you will forever or perpetually live in a state of trial and tribulation. Joseph did not know that the day he woke up that day would be the day that everything would change. And might it be this week that God might change your circumstances in this way? Are you ready for it? Are you ready to give God the glory for it? Now we can quickly look at this story of chapter 41 and say what an amazing man Joseph is. He's the MVP, right? When the Cubs won the World Series, they, they awarded the whole team the World Series trophy. But there was one guy, Ben Zobris, who got another trophy. He was the most valuable player. We, we read Genesis 41 and, and we want to say, well, Egypt won the championship, if you will. They're going to live during this time of famine. But there's an MVP and that MVP is Joseph. What I want you to know this morning is it ain't Joseph who's the MVP, it's God. God is the one who's working behind the scenes. God is the one who put Joseph for those 13 years right where he needed him to be. It was Joseph, I'm sorry, it was God who gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. It was Jo, I'm sorry, I keep saying Joseph. It was God who told the cupbearer to be reminded of Joseph's ability. It was God who gave Pharaoh the dreams that he couldn't figure out. It was God who confounded and bewildered the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. It was God who gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. It was God who gave Joseph the ability to plan and work and prepare the people of Egypt for a famine. It was God over and over and over again. And that same God who served Joseph is the same God who serves you. And what you need to recognize and what I need to recognize is no problem that we face is too big for God to figure out. God is the MVP of this story. And if we promote Joshua to it, I'm sorry, Joseph to it, too many names this morning, Joseph to it, then we mess everything up. Because we put Joseph into a Hall of Fame category where only God should be. And here's the reason why. The life of Joseph, let's pivot to point number two, is a life of symbolism that points us to someone greater. Now, let me explain. Joseph, a real-life story. Joseph, real-life circumstances. But as we look at the life of Joseph, behind what's going on in Joseph's life is even a grander story. Joseph, a great man. But as we look at the life of Joseph, we get previewed to even a greater man, that being Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the New Testament, in fact, Jesus uses these phrases, that there are different parts of the Old Testament that were signs or previews to the coming of Jesus. That God in his divine plan and revelation from Genesis to Malachi was giving sneak peeks or sneak previews. Kind of like what you see at a movie theater when you get there right before the movie starts. These little trailers of things that are to come. Kind of whet the appetite of, oh, I want to see that movie. I want to see that, that, that flick. The stories of the Old Testament have these little trailers in them that point to Jesus. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus tells us of one. We are told that Jesus, or we told of Jesus speaking to a crowd that 
Jonah, remember Jonah and the big fish, Jonah swallowed up by the big fish, and Joseph, or Jonah spends three days in the belly of a big fish. Jesus says, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days in the grave. And just as a picture of the Messiah going into the tomb for three days, Jonah was a picture of that. Well, Joseph is a picture over and over again, as I shared in the first sermon, that Joseph is a portrait of Christ. In Genesis 41, we see more similarities than we could ever come up with. Now, we've seen a lot from Genesis 37 to 41. First of all, notice both were loved by their fathers. Jesus was loved by his father, so was Joseph. Both Jesus and Joseph were mistreated by their brothers. Both were rejected and conspired against. Both were mistreated and delivered up to die. Both were delivered from their pit, from, the de- from their death. Both were servants who were hated, and both were exalted by God to higher positions of authority. And while those show great similarities, the chapter that we've just read shows us even more. And I want to spend a couple moments looking at some of the symbolism that we see of Joseph's life and how it paints us or previews the life of Jesus Christ. Notice, Joseph is like Jesus in his position. In his position, write that down. Now in his position, I want to give you three areas of his position where he is like Jesus. First, we see it in the great gifting he has been given. There's a great problem in the world in Joseph's day, and Joseph is the only one who can resolve the situation. There's a dream that Pharaoh's had, and Pharaoh has brought all manner of people into his throne room, and no one can answer or address the problem. Just like Jesus. Jesus would enter into a city, and all manner of people would come. All these helpless cases, either they're filled with demons, they have diseases that are eating away their body, they have all manner of problems, and they come to Jesus because Jesus was the only one who had the giftings to answer it, and Jesus would heal them and deliver them from the evil spirits. He was the person they turned to, just like Joseph. Notice not only in his giftings, but also in his greatness. His greatness. Joseph, because of his giftings, would be given supreme authority in the world of Egypt. Pharaoh says, listen, you've been able to take care of my dream. You've interpreted it. I'm going to give you control and oversight over all of the land of Egypt. Well, Jesus, because of his giftings, the book of Colossians says, would be given control over all the universe. That there's not a single molecule that isn't in its place outside of Jesus' control and plan. Joseph was the Lord of all, and so is Jesus. His greatness. How about in his glory? In his glory. The glory of Joseph would be expansive over all things except, listen, except for Pharaoh, right? He was second. While he was equal to Pharaoh, he deferred and did the will of Pharaoh. Like Jesus, Jesus' glory is not ascended by anybody else but one, the Father in heaven. Why? Because they're not equal? No, Joseph was equal with Pharaoh. But he deferred to Pharaoh 
to do the will of Pharaoh. Jesus is equal with the Father, but defers to the will of the Father. He says in the garden, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And so he defers, he allows himself to be in second place, if you will, to the Father, even though they're equal, so that he can fulfill the word and will of his Father in heaven. His greatness, his gifting, his glory. Look at, he's clothed with all splendor. A mere prisoner, a mere servant, is put on robes and rings and given a place of great authority. So did Jesus, made himself one of us, put on skin, walked around, went about life as we did, though without sin, died a sinner's death, so that he might be elevated to the right hand of the Father. Joseph would go about Egypt, and wherever Joseph went, people would bow the knee. At the name of Joseph, people would bow, just like Jesus, Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You seeing the similarities? Let's go on. We see it in his position. Notice we see it in his personal life. In his personal life. Joseph becomes prime minister over all of Egypt. And his life changes. The first thing that changes is he's given a new name. I'm not even going to try to butcher it. I did it in the first service right one time, and then I butchered it the second time, okay? He's given this new name. The new name in Hebrew that he is given, this two-phrase word, okay, literally is Savior of the world. Hmm. Now, why in the world would he be called that? Here's the reason why. In seven years, Egypt is going to die a merciless death due to the famine. They didn't see the famine coming. They didn't know that that was their problem, but Joseph did. And Joseph saw the problem of Egypt before Egypt did, and he warned them, mm -hmm, hint, hint, he warns them of the impending doom that is upon them. And that they can do things in the process. If they were to listen to the teaching and the words of Joseph, they might be spared from destruction. Pharaoh says, listen, you've saved us from our demise. Well, just like Joseph, Jesus came preaching that doom and despair and destruction was on its way. But there was an alternative. If you would obey the words of the one who was speaking you could be saved. And Jesus rightly is called the Savior of the world. And we see a preview of that in the saving of a nation to Jesus, even greater than Joseph, saving the world from their demise and destruction due to sin. Well, we know that because of that, he's given a new name. He's given a new bride. Never been married, 30 years of age. They look at Joseph and say, Joseph, why haven't you been married? Well, been a little busy, okay? Not a lot of women in the prison, okay? Not a lot of opportunities to get married. Joseph's a Hebrew guy. Now, right away you could say, well, why is a Hebrew guy um, marrying an Egyptian? Well, there were no Hebrew ladies around. It's Egypt. And i got to be honest with you. Is Joseph really thinking, I want to go find uh, someone from a group of people that have thrown me into slavery? 
So he's given as a gift a beautiful woman, and he marries her. He marries a Gentile woman, non-Israelite woman. What symbolism is there? A lot. Jesus Christ would come to be the Messiah of Israel. He would be rejected by his brothers. And what would Jesus do? He would say salvation would not be found simply in Israel. But all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew and Gentile alike. Now here's what we would have to do. It wasn't like what what Joseph did was, listen, I'll marry you, Egyptian woman, and we'll merge our cultures together. We'll be half Egyptian, half Hebrew. No, in the naming of his two sons, he shows us that for a Gentile to be brought into the covenant work of God, you must bow the knee to God. And no mother, listen, would allow her children to be named after a different God unless she believed that God to be true. So Joseph converts his wife. Their children are brought under the teaching that God, Jehovah, is the only true God. He's the one that will protect Egypt from this demise that's coming their way. And in it, we see a picture, listen, of Jesus being rejected by his brothers, Israel. And Jesus would open his arms to you and I as Gentiles. If, if. We would bow the knee and ascribe worship to the one and true God, the Father in heaven. See the similarities? Pretty uncanny, aren't they? Notice, finally, we see his business. So we've seen he's got a new bride. We see he's got a new name. What about his business? He's got a preparing work. For seven years, he is going to prepare something for something that's going to happen later on in life. So everything's going great, and people will be like, well, why do we need Joseph around? I mean, my goodness, we're experiencing bumper crop. We don't need Joseph around. Why is he here? I mean, what good is it? Man, everything's great. He's taking away a 20th of our crop. Man, we've never seen crops like this. We'll always see crops like this. But Joseph says, I'm preparing for something. I'm preparing for something that will be better in the future. Hmm. If I remember right, John 14, Jesus says, hey, i got to go away from here. Why, Jesus? Why do you have to leave? Everything's great. You're with us. Everything's going good. You don't have to go anywhere. Listen, i got to go. And what's the phrase he uses? Prepare a place. And when I'm done preparing, I will draw all you people to come and be with me. Joseph prepared... And then he called all the nations to come and enjoy the work of his preparation. Do you see the similarities? He prepared for us. Notice he intercedes for us. Joseph is doing work that the ordinary Egyptian had no idea about. Life is good. What's Joseph doing? He's going as an in-between our destruction and the Egyptian. And he's coming in between, he's saying, I'm going to prepare because the ordinary Egyptian doesn't know that destruction's coming his way. And so I'm going to intercede. I'm going to be the guy that stands in the gap. I'm going to be the middleman that does the work because this guy doesn't have a clue of what's coming. Hmm, do you see the similarities? Jesus stands in the gap for you and I. 
When we don't see the demise, when we don't see the destruction, Jesus stands before us in sin and sorrow and pain, and he tells the Father, put it to my account. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. We see him interceding. We see him preparing. We see him taking care of people. Notice his power. We're done here now. His power... Joseph's not divine. Listen, he's not the fourth person of the Trinity. He's a picture of Jesus, a preview, a trailer of what was to come. How about his power? Jesus has the keys to life and death. At the end of the chapter, we are told that it is Joseph who opens the grain for the pe- the granaries, the bins, the barns, for people to have food. Joseph holds in his hands for Egypt the keys on whether Egypt would live or die. And Joseph locked up until the proper time the goods that he had prepared. Likewise, Jesus is the key on whether we will live or die. It is Jesus in his treasure where we go to that in his right time, in his right place, opens the throne room of heaven and allows us to enjoy the blessings that come, which is our salvation. He has the power to do it. He becomes the savior of the world. I want you to notice that just like Joseph Jesus, we see, is sufficient. The text tells us that Joseph had enough grain to provide for every need the Egyptians had, and so much more that they could provide for the needs of others. We're going to fast forward here in a moment. The brothers of Joseph would come and they would gain fruit and and food in their time of need. Likewise, Jesus, listen, brothers and sisters, is sufficient in his salvation for us. And here's the thing, the Bible makes it clear in our text that it's only through Joseph that they could get the food. And it's only through Jesus that we can have eternal life. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Joseph said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the grain but through me. Joseph is a picture. So let me quick, because I'm running out of time here, so let me just quickly say this. All of this is important because it tells us from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, God's got a plan. And if you wondered that, there's a redemptive thread going from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22. And God's got a plan, and he's working his plan through, and Joseph is one chapter of that. And Joseph's a preview of it. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a preview of Jesus Christ? Are you living your life in such a way that when someone looks at you, they say, man, I see Tim, but I also see Jesus. When Tim works, I see Jesus. When Tim serves, I see Jesus. When Tim talks, I see Jesus. When Tim lives, I see Jesus. When Tim cares, I see Jesus. Can they say that of me? i got to work through that. Can they say that of you? Does your boss see Jesus? Does your spouse see Jesus? Does your kids see Jesus? Your neighbor, when he looks at you, does he see Jesus? When strangers see you, do they see Jesus? When we look at the life of Joseph, we see Jesus. And the question is, can we say the same of us today? 
Final point, four very quick things. We need to look and ask the question this morning. What about the rest of us? What are the steps for us? Here's the application. A lot of information. And I, I, some ways I apologize. In some ways I want to overwhelm you because the information is pretty awesome, isn't it? So what are some applications? I see four very quick. I won't take a lot of time in this. Applications for us from Genesis chapter 41. Application number one. We are reminded of God's greatness. I already said this, but I'll just say this again. God is the MVP. He is the champion. He is the main character. In fact, he is really the only character in the redemptive story. And just like Joseph, we need to marvel at what God is doing. We serve a great God. We serve a God who can take you out of your prison cell and make you prime minister in a New York minute. Right? We have a God, and this is important, this is extra credit by the way, I didn't tell this in the first story. We have a God who in one night can make a pagan king or president bow the knee. Amen? In one moment. How did he shake the foundations of Egypt? Our God gave puny Pharaoh a couple dreams and it freaked them out. How strong is Pharaoh? Not very. How strong is our God? Awesome. Right? So when we go to vote and we wonder, well, can God do anything about it? All he's got to do is give Hillary or Donald just a couple dreams. And it could change everything. We serve an amazing God. Don't ever forget God's greatness. Number two. How about the gifts God gives? Let's move quickly through this. God was the one that gave Joseph the dream. Listen, God gave Joseph dreams with the expectation that Joseph was going to use those gifts. Imagine with me for a moment that the guards come, grab Joseph, put Joseph before Pharaoh and say, I hear you can do dreams. And Joseph says, well, I used to do dreams, but not anymore. I'm too old for that. I did that when I was younger, but I've moved on from that. I hear you can interpret Pharaoh's dream for him. You know, really, I'm not feeling it right now. God hasn't been that nice to me. And so, you know what? I'm not going to help God. Some of us use excuses like that with regards to our gifts. And we sit on them. I'd love to have you serve in the children's room. Yeah, you know what? Kind of busy here in the prison right now. Or God hasn't been helping me, so why should I help him? And we sit on our gifts. Listen, God gives us gifts expecting that we're going to use them. So what gifts has God given you that he's expecting for you to use? Don't sit on them. Number two, God will call you to use your gifts at a moment's notice. Be ready. I am a preacher today. Listen, because I said yes to an in-the-moment opportunity. That's it. I was available. I never could imagine that this is what my narrative would be. I was asked one time, would you fill the pulpit? I said, I've never done it before. We still want you to fill the pulpit. I'm not sure I can do it. That's all right. Fill the pulpit. Well, I don't know what I'll say. That's okay. Fill the pulpit. Well, I got a couple hundred other excuses. That's okay. Fill the pulpit. I'm just a caterer. Tim, shut up. Fill the pulpit. And look at what's happened. Never could have imagined it. I pinched myself sometimes because God moved in my spirit to say yes to a moment's opportunity. Joseph said yes in the moment and look, his life would never be the same.
Are you in that moment going to say the same thing? God gives you gifts. He wants you to use them. Number three, live for the glory of God. So God's going to give you some success, and God's given many of you success. Gosh, it was so great when Ben Zobris got up and said, it's not me, but it's Christ. Oh, that's sweet. That's good, right? Oh, yeah, we're great baseball players. That's wonderful, but it's God. It's God who gives us the abilities. It's God. And, and, and one thing I want you to see in Joseph's life in Genesis 41 is that glory is going to come. When God makes you successful, glory is going to come. And, and what God wants you to do is God wants you to take, if you will, a mirror. And this is the word picture I want you to walk with. So stick with me for just a couple more moments. When glory comes... I want you to pull out that mirror and deflect the glory, the spotlight that comes on you and shine it to God. So Joseph says, man, I hear you can interpret dreams. It's not me, it's God. Hey, you got some great children there. It's not me, it's God. How did you get through the circumstances and all the bitterness in your life? It's not me, it's God. I want you to notice something. When you take a mirror and a spotlight's being shined on you and you reflect that to someone else, listen to two things. One, You're pointing it to where all glory should be due. And two, God in his grace and mercy allows a little bit of that residual spotlight to stay on you. And that's okay, right? Joseph walked around. Everybody bowed the knee to Joseph. Joseph's like, no, you shouldn't do that. But Joseph always pointed, listen, the reason why I'm where I'm at, the reason I'm the person I am today is because of God. Reflect the glory. That's why we're called whether we eat or drink to do all things to the glory of God. One final truth that I want you to walk away from. Stewardship that allows for generosity. Let me just finish with this. Joseph did the most un-American thing possible. I want you to listen to this very carefully because this is hitting many of you. Joseph did the most un-American thing he could have. Joseph lived on less, saved the rest, so he could be generous with others. We learned at our conference that we went to just a couple weeks ago that Americans spend 125% of what they make. Let me say that again. We make a dollar and we spend a dollar 25. How do we do that? If we only got a dollar, how do we get the other 25 cents? We put it on credit, right? Somebody's given us the ability to spend more than we have. And we find ourselves in a problem. We're not good stewards of what God has given us. We're consuming not only all that we have, but 25% more than what we have. And so we can't be generous with God. We can't be generous with others. And we can't even, on a rainy day or in Joseph's day, a non-rainy day, have something in the supply house, right? American statistics say we are one $500 repair from being in financial ruin, most Americans. That's a refrigerator, that's a laundry appliance, that's a car repair. Why? Because we, like the Egyptians, unplanning for a rainy or not so rainy day in their, in their plan, weren't prepared. Joseph reminds us as Christians that if we want to be ready for the days of famine and the days to be able to let God shine, listen very carefully, God's glory to shine in our money, that means we spend less than what we get, we save some so that when someone is in need, we're able to help them. I want you to know when Joseph was handing out the grain, do you think he was taking all the glory? No. 
My God in heaven told me that this was coming. He told me what to do. And now I can give you something. You should worship God as well. It is my belief, and commentaries agree with me, that the greatest revival of God broke out in Egypt because of good stewardship. Your neighbor may need your help, and you can't help him because you don't have anything to give because you're consuming in the seven good years 125% of what you have that you can't be generous, and that when you're generous to them, they say, why would you be generous with me? Because I serve a great and awesome God. I want you to know him. But you can't because you haven't reordered your life in such a way that you, like Joseph, would say, you know what? I'm not going to eat all that I've got, but I'm going to save some, And in the chance that I may need it, or in the chance that my neighbor may need it, that I might be able to be generous. And while I'm being generous, I can share the gospel with that individual. Wow. That's going to change some of our living, won't it? The way we spend, the way we live, the way we go about our lives. But an opportunity for the gospel lived out. Genesis 41 tells us that there's a Cinderella man. And that Cinderella man isn't Jim Braddock in the Great Depression. It isn't even Joseph. That Cinderella man is Jesus Christ. And he's the one we adore. He's the one we worship. It is he who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and loves us and went to the cross to die for us that we might have everlasting life in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for the patience and perseverance of my listeners. A lot of information. But Lord, I I think you wrote all that to overwhelm us of your grace and glory. And Lord, I pray that that would be true, that we would be overwhelmed by your greatness. And when opportunities of success and opportunities of, of generosity come, that we might reflect that glory over and over again. Lord, reflect that glory through our gifts. Reflect that glory um, as we live and, and, and work. Reflect that glory as we give. That when people say, why do we do these things? Why, why do we live this way? That we may point and say, it's because of Jesus Christ. And I love him. And I want you to know about him. Lord, thank you that we have these truths. We have this modeling of an ordinary man doing extraordinary things because of his faith and because of your goodwill and pleasure. Work in such ways in our lives. Not for our glory, Lord, again but for yours. We love you for the story of Joseph and what it teaches us. Now, Lord, let us apply it to our lives that we may live differently this week and reflect the glory you've given us. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.